Good evening. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 26. Well, Matthew chapter 26. Let's pray before we look at the scriptures tonight. Father, as we have been going through this book, Lord, it's been a journey to hear from you to be challenged by you, to see once again your understanding of the kingdom of heaven and to compare how we live our lives to how you desire life to be lived. And Lord, there are changes that constantly have to be made. And tonight again, Lord, may we look and see what changes we need to make to be able to live a life that looks like the life that you have for us to live. God, that we would not come up short. We would not discount or put aside anything that would be valuable for us and for your cause in our lives tonight. Thank you again for this opportunity. May our focus be on you. Help us to maintain attention. Give me clarity in the words that I speak. May this time be rich for us as we spend it with you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're coming to the end of this gospel. Just a few more chapters left. I don't think we're going to make it all the way through this chapter. Uh, but we're definitely taking a turn and things are starting to wind down. It's going to be definitely a period in scripture where we are very aware of, we've read and heard of many times as we come through the passion of Christ, those final days, and then the resurrection. And starting in verse 1 of chapter 26, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, this is talking about the things Previously, this is actually the fifth time that Matthew has said this. There's been five different discourses that Jesus has given that Matthew has recorded. And so this is the final time that he's saying, when he had finished saying these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the son of man will be handed over and be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. As Jesus finishes this last discourse and he's moving forward towards the cross, and he brings this announcement that we're going to go to the Passover and that it's just two days away, which would mean it was on a Tuesday that he's speaking of this. But Matthew's genealogy isn't all, or chrono, chronology isn't always real keen. And there's going to be some things in this chronology where it seems like he talks about this, then he jumps backwards a little bit, and then he comes back into the event. But he's letting us know this time is happening just a few days before Jesus was going to be celebrating the Passover and crucified. And then he gives them, once again, this clear message, hey, the Passover is coming, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And we wonder, what were they thinking? 
Did they fully understand? In the past, it seems like they didn't. Every time Jesus would say something like this, they would respond, Lord, who's the greatest? Who's going to follow after you? Who's going to be in charge maybe when you die? It, It seems like there was a lot of things a little bit confused and out of sorts in their mind. And then as he goes on to talk about this, the scene shifts, and we see that the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace. This comprised the great Sanhedrin at Jerusalem. This was their superior court. This was their supreme judicial body of the Jewish nation. These are the people who make the rules. And as they're deciding to make these rules, they have it in their mind to put Jesus to death. And we've kind of looked at the reasons why. A lot of it was because of what Jesus was doing was taking away from their authority. And he was coming up and kind of gaining the momentum of the crowd. They didn't like that. They were losing power. He seemed to be gaining it. And they tried to test him, tried to put him down in front of the people, but it never worked. You just can't win when you're fighting against God. And so they are figuring, okay, if we can't beat him in this way, if we can't contain his ministry and his voice, then we just need to silence it. But the Passover was a huge event. They tried to determine and take a census with the people during the Passover, but it was such a heightened religious time that Rome was afraid to actually take a census. Because if they were to take a census, the people would fill Rome's usurping authority and they were concerned that the people would riot and rebel against Rome. And so they were trying to figure out how can we find out how many people are actually coming, how many people are of this Jewish descent who we can tax, basically. How do we know how many they are so we can understand what the money should be we can get from these people. And the way they figured out how to do it was to count how many sacrificial lambs were sacrificed during this Passover because they would require one lamb for about 10 people. And Josephus writes that they had at one time sacrificed on the Passover over 285,000 lambs. A lot of lambs. So they estimate that there could be three quarters to maybe even a million people that come to the city at this time. So a whole bunch of people. And the biggest problem that the chief priest had was dealing with this tension between this nation that believed that they were God's people, but now were being oppressed by this powerful Roman Empire and this rebellion that would want to take place and this power that could just squash them and later would. And so the high priest is trying to keep order, trying to keep his position. And so what they don't want to do is when they have a million people here, make a scene with this Jesus. And so that's their predicament. How, how do we deal with this Jesus? Well, we need to put him to death. Okay, yeah, we're all agreed. They all are in this together. 
But when? Well, we can't do it right now. We have to wait till after the feast when the crowd subsides. There's not as many people around. Then we can deal with this matter. And so that's kind of the stage setting as Jesus is going into the Passover, what's taking place in the temple courts, the the palace of Caiaphas, what's taking place with Jesus and his disciples. And we get a little bit more moving in this direction. In verse 6, we see, While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him, with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they said. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, Matthew places this account here And he seems to be doing it to connect us with what Jesus has just said, talking about he's going to go celebrate the Passover and he's going to die. We see in the other Gospels, in John's Gospels, that this record takes place, or this event takes place, six days before the Passover. And John identifies this woman as Mary, the sister of Martha. There is a similar account in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, where there's a woman of a sinful reputation, but there's, that was Simon, a different Simon, uh, a priest. This one is Simon the leper, and it's believed that this was a person who once had leprosy, and Jesus healed him. And so it's Simon the leper. And it wasn't an interesting thing. What's your nickname? Oh, I'm Simon the leper. You know, oh yeah, I'm the guy who used to have leprosy. That It kind of sticks. Which Simon is it? Oh, remember the leper? Yeah, it's Simon the leper. But he's cleansed now, apparently, because everyone's going to his house. But anyway, it's a different account what's taking place with this Simon to the one in uh, Luke's gospel. But it's we know that it's Mary, the sister of Martha, brother of brother Lazarus, who we've talked about in the past. And, and as she comes here, and it's this time, Jesus tells us why this is happening. It's an anointing for his burial. Uh, the oil that he is being anointed with is very expensive. It's costly. This would be worth a year's wage. There's a reference between the money that would be spent to this jar of perfume and the money that was needed to feed the thousands. That one time where they said, Jesus, it would take so much money to feed these thousands of people. There's a similar, it would be enough to feed a whole bunch of people at one time. And so this is a valuable jar of perfume. Some believe it was a dowry for a wedding. If she was to be married, this would be her dowry. This is kind of the gift that would be given or she would use at that time, which is, again, an interesting thing that she would be giving this up. 
But as this is taking place and this custom to anoint his head and also usually his feet, the disciples become indignant. And even though John focuses on Judas, here Matthew says they were indignant. Mark also includes others. So it wasn't just Judas. Here are the disciples of Jesus, and they're upset because of the waste and the money. And they say, he could have bought all these things with poor. Now, there are a few things that really stand out to me in these verses that are illuminating to human character. But I want to hear from you guys. Are there any things that stand out to you just in this passage of the whole anointing? I mean, some beautiful things. What do you think about this action that Mary is doing, anointing Jesus' head? What do you think about the disciples' response? And what do you think about Jesus' response to them? Yeah, it seems that there's more of an awareness to what's happening with Mary, and usually is the case with the women in his dialogue with Scripture. Go ahead, you can say it if you want to. What is neat in what you shared too, Colleen, is there is a time when love has no value, or you can't put a value on love. That to say this is too much means little when it's a matter of love, when it's what's needing to be done. You know, when her love for Jesus is at such a level that the cost is, it means nothing. The love means so much more. And that's a very telling sign of her worship for Jesus. That this, even though it was of such value, it was still something she wanted to do. Which is a great picture of us and what love is supposed to be. It's not something we can put a value on. It's priceless. And this value for Christ is something that she is willing to give her all to and for. And she does. The disciples, on the other hand, see this and say, man, we could have gotten a lot. Which also tells me that they were probably not living in the best of circumstances. You know, there's a few times where Jesus said, you know, you want to follow me? Hey, the birds have nests, the foxes have holes, the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Or when he sent them to go and get money from a fish, you know, or he said, hey, one of you go give them something to pay this tax. It wasn't like they had a lot of money. And so they were probably now three years moving with Jesus, you know, it'd be nice to stay in a hotel. You know, it'd be nice to find a nice place where we could rest. And this money, that could have all got us a nice place, a little break. You know, we've been following you, Jesus, for three years. Man, we've been serving you hard. It's a lot of work. It'd be nice to get some bennies here now at the end of or this time of ministry. Hey, it's a Passover you know, shoot us something, you know, that would be nice. Whatever was going on in their heads, the idea of money became important, more so than this act of worship. And that's a bit telling. It's also interesting that whenever someone does something that is genuine and beautiful and 
compassionate towards God, what our reactions are. I've noticed many times what can happen is if you see a, a group of people that are really connecting with God and doing something wonderful and you see amazing thing happen, amazing things happening with that group that a lot of other groups that also follow Christ become envious and start to belittle this group. Well, you know, they don't really teach the word like we do. Or, you know what, I hear that this is what's going on over there. And so trying to make themselves feel better, they'll put this down and it makes them feel good. And we can have a tendency to do that. And, and it's amazing that the disciples say, this money, it's a waste. We could have given it to the poor. What a noble thing. All of a sudden, they're so concerned about the poor. They really care. Before, they're, Jesus, send these people away. We don't know what to do with them. Now we care about the poor. And it gives them the self-righteousness. And, and it's interesting that sometimes we can miss the sacred because we're so captured by the ritual. That there is something sacred taking place right here. This event is such a beautiful picture of worship. And it's going right over their heads because they're blinded by this religious ritual that they're thinking should be done. Feeding the poor, great thing. Jesus talked about it often. But what was happening here was more important. Certain things can only be done when the moment arises. And you have to take advantage of that moment. There are certain times when God is doing something and the action is required right then. And if you put that aside because of, well, it's not, it's not on my calendar, or, well, no, we've planned this and, and we have this scheduled, so we can't change this because this is how it's supposed to be, you can miss something monumental if you're not allowing the moment to shape you and your actions and instead are trying to be controlling and that can happen a lot. That, that's happened in my life many times. I remember years ago when I was traveling up and back to Napa. You know, I was driving up to Napa twice, sometimes three times a month, uh, looking into establishing a church up there and dri driving back here and learning how to do dog training. And it was just a chaotic time in my life. And it was coming on December. One of my boys was in uh, the Marine boot camp. The other one was moved to Texas, and the other one was moving out of the house. It was just a surreal time. So much change was going on. And I remember a pastor sat me down and said, you need to just stop. You need to stop and settle down and think. And you need to take some time off. And I was able to have that December off and actually spend it with my family together. And 
looking back, it, I could have been so busy about trying to figure out what does God want me to do. I'm going to travel. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be moving. I'm going to be moving. But it wasn't until I stopped and just sat with my family and was able to kind of see things a little bit more clearly that I was really able to say, I'm not going up north. That's not for me. And I can see it clearly now because of the things that I'm seeing just as I'm still. And sometimes we can get so busy with religious things, feeding the poor, doing this, doing that, that we miss a sacred moment that's taking place right here in front of us. And it might be just a conversation with your family. It might be the ability to bless one person. It might seem wasteful. And really, it's exactly what needs to be done. And how do you know? Well, you have to be a little bit more like Mary and a little bit less like the disciples. You have to be a little bit more paying attention. You have to be a little bit more intuitive and connected to what is actually happening so that you don't miss that moment. And there are moments that we miss. And we need to be aware of those things. Because what she did, Jesus says, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus said, this is remarkable. This is such a remarkable act of worship. And you see, the fragrance of her love for Christ lasted forever. You know, I heard someone say one time that, you know, there were two people who left this place smelling like the perfume. It was Jesus and the one who applied it. And the same thing is true with our lives. If you want to actually have the fragrance of that worship, then you have to be the one who applies it. It's not enough to be around the room saying, oh, yeah, look at those people are singing. Oh, those people are worshiping. Oh, those people are connecting to God. You have to get your hands on the oil. You have to spend the costly, you know, ointment on Jesus. You, you need to be the one who actually participates if you want to come away with that fragrance on you. It's such an important thing. Any other things stand out to you guys just in this? It's a beautiful picture of worship. Beautiful picture, isn't it? Just, it's wonderful verses. They're so rich. And again, you know, when Jesus says, the poor you will have with you always, but you will not always have me, he's not making a statement against the poor. He's making a statement for the moment of what's taking place and the value of this moment. And it's important to recognize those kinds of moments. Verse 14, we'll move on, and we're going to turn a dark corner here. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Thirty pieces of silver was about the price of a slave. And today's financial, you know, equivalent, it might be like $50. It's not a lot of money. But it was enough to buy a slave, and it's interesting that that's kind of an equation that was put down as far as how much the value is. 
Matthew, earlier in chapter 20, verse 28, says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was becoming a slave, even as Philippians tells us, chapter 2. He became a servant obedient to death. He became a slave. And so this is one of the more troubling passages and situations. Even as we go into the Last Supper, this seems to be really more a dialogue and a situation that's taking place between Jesus and Judas. And there's some troubling things with this because I wonder why and how could he do this? Why is Judas betraying Jesus? How could he do that? Any thoughts on that? From John's gospel, we know that Judas was taking money, stealing it from the purse. And so we know money was part of that. What are some other thoughts? Why is Judas betraying? I mean, didn't he see the miracles? Wasn't he there when they fed the thousand? Yeah, it was talked about that the prediction that this, there was going to be this one to betray Jesus. Remember, just because God knows about something doesn't mean that he is responsible for it. In other words, God knows that this is going to happen and, and it's going to happen because God has set the wheels in motion as far as this is how it's going to play out. But it doesn't mean that God made Judas do this. In other words, Judas is still responsible. That's why, well, we'll see in the Jesus says, but woe to this person who it happens because that person is responsible. You know, I think, I don't think Jesus was who G Judas wanted him to be. I think Judas wanted Jesus, like you were saying, Tony, to be someone to, to take power. He might have been more on that kind of zealot side where I want to I want to put Rome down. I want to finally get our foot in and take over. This is our chance. We're going to move forward. And it's not playing out the way he wanted. And so he gets a little bit disgruntled and he starts to think, okay, Jesus, why aren't you doing this? And why aren't you doing that? And pretty soon he's justifying taking money because, you know, Jesus isn't doing these things. And look what he did with this woman. He allowed her to pour this costly perfume on him. What a waste of money. Okay, yeah, this isn't the guy I want to follow because Jesus wasn't who Jesus Judas wanted him to be. And I think that's a little alarming. Who do I want Jesus to be? What happens when he's not who I want him to be? Or am I putting those kinds of things on Jesus? And Jesus, I want you to be like this. And now when I lose my job or when my child suffers and has cancer. Jesus, are you still who I want you to be? Some people are able to see Jesus still. Some people turn away because he's not who I want him to be. And I think that's something that we all have to face. Are we going to let Jesus be who he is. We can never use him for our purposes. Or are we really following him because how it's going to serve our lives? Well, Jesus, I'm following you because you're supposed to make my life easier.
You're supposed to help me to be happy. You're supposed to, and whatever those things are in our mind, this is why I'm living for you, Jesus, is because you're going to help me out. And what happens when Jesus doesn't turn out to be who we want him to be? A lot of people deny him. Say, nope, it's not what I wanted. It's not what I expected. It didn't go my way. And that's just it. It was your way. It wasn't Jesus's way. And we come to this confrontation that Jesus has been laying down all along. If any man comes after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, follow me. Whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, that person is going to find it. There is this understanding of my desires, my dreams, all the things that I want. I need to find in who you are. And it's not going to be just for me. This is for you and your cause, and your cause is always about people. It's always about love. If God gives me anything, it's so that I too can give to others. Jesus is the example. And the minute we lose that sight and we think it's just about us, we become a stagnant pool that doesn't replenish and get replenished. We just stay that way. And that's a danger and that's a scary thing. And it's more apt to happen to those who have a lot. That's why Jesus said how difficult it is for those who are wealthy to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The disciples said, what? And he goes, well, with God, all things are possible. But we can get so caught up that it's about us, that we lose sight of the heart of God to connect to a lost and dying world. And so this passage and what happens with Judas always troubles me. And I've always just said, well, that's because, you know, kind of like what you were saying, Adia, nah, that's who he's supposed to be. He needed someone to be the fall guy. And so it was Judas. But the truth is, Judas made a choice. And I don't think he made this choice just, eh, I think I'm going to do this. I don't know why. Just have this feeling like it's supposed to happen. No, I think Judas was intentional on this and I think somewhere along the line, he says, no, I'm not, this guy isn't going where I want to go. And so he made the decision to follow no more. Took the 30 pieces of silver. I'm out of here. And left. Any other thoughts on just this passage? I think, too, we tend to want to ask, I think, the wrong questions because it gives us security. Like, okay, so was Judas ever saved? You know, that's the question we want to ask, but the, the real question is what was taking place in Judas's heart throughout the whole time. Was, was Judas ever surrendered? D did the life of God ever dwell in the life of Judas, or was Judas just walking alongside with this and enjoying the ride, so to speak? But it was never a life that he said, yeah, I want this life over my own, you know. And no one can answer that. You know, only 
God and Judas really know. And probably Judas didn't even know at that time. And I think sometimes we want to have that answer, well, how does it work? You know, how do I know? And John tells us that we can have assurance. How do I have assurance? Well, you have assurance by abiding, by allowing his life to abide in you, by being connected to the life. Uh, I don't know any other way to have assurance except for to be living in it. And then I have assurance. But like you said, I can't go back and say, well, yeah, on you know, June 23rd, 1996, I said a prayer at a church. I was on my knees. And then they prayed over me, and this stuff happened. And so there, I'm saved. No, it's are you a part of his life right now? Is that life continuing? And with that choice, we have the ability to do incredible good or incredible bad. And that's all on us. And so it is frightening, the human decisions we can make. And with Judas, you know, we, we know that decision and where it led. Some we don't know, even though they, they do bad things. Paul talks about the man in Corinthians to give him over to Satan so that the destruction of his body, his soul might be saved. What the heck is that, you know? That's talking about a whole other aspect of, well, maybe this person's just, you know, he's connected to God, but, man, he's messing up, and maybe God's going to take him so that he doesn't mess up more. I don't know. You know, that, that's, that's where I'll leave those decisions to God. All I have to do is worry about my life, how I'm living, how I'm connected to God, and how his life is dwelling in me because I'm responsible for me. But it is very troubling. And I think it's supposed to be. I think God has this here and is letting us know so that it's an understanding because, I mean, Judas was right there with all the disciples. They all did healings and miracles. They also all fled and denied. I mean, it almost appears as we go through, and I don't think we're going to have time, the Last Supper, that Jesus is still extending out forgiveness to Judas, which is a mind-blowing thing. He does that knowing that he isn't, we're not going to get into it tonight because it's already quarter after and there's no way we can delve into the Last Supper adequately. Um, But Jesus says, this is my body, broken my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And and he takes and he partakes with each of them, including Judas. And he tells Judas, you're the one. And it reminds me of God talking to Cain before he kills his brother when he's upset, and, and he says, Cain, if you do what's right, won't I accept you? But if you aren't careful, sin is going to devour you. It's like a lion seeking to devour you, and you must master it, not let it master you. 
Did God know that Cain was going to kill his brother? Yeah, he did. But he still extended opportunity to him. It's interesting because God doesn't have a conversation with Abel. It seems like God's closer to Cain than he is to Abel in the scripture. The dialogue that takes place is only between God and Cain. He's like, Cain, hey, listen. Even though I didn't accept your offering, I'm talking to you. I'm, I'm warning you. This is what you need to do. And Jesus discloses who he is, tells them what he's doing, but is still extending that reach to Judas, even though he knows Judas is going to betray him. I don't know. It just kind of blows my mind. It's like, did Judas have the opportunity to actually repent even though he did this? I think what Judas did was recognized, was sorry for being in a place that caused these things to happen, but I don't know that Jesus or Judas actually repented and changed the person who he was because he did not go to Jesus. He actually took his own life. I think Judas was so consumed with himself that what happened was all that could happen because it's all who Judas was. I think the reason Judas betrayed Jesus and the reason he went through and even killed himself is because this is the person that Judas was. And who he was was something in the making from, for, I don't know, his whole life, but it was a decision that he made. And what we see taking place in Judas was just uh, becoming stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger, the person who he really was, kind of like Pharaoh, who hardened and hardened and hardened his heart. And finally, God says, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to harden your heart because it's already there, and now I'm going to use you as an example. And I think Judas fits that same model where Judas hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart, and then God says, okay, You've made your decision, now I'm going to use you as the example. And I will use your hardened heart and your decisions to be an example to those outside. And that's the scary thing. That's, to me, that's the problem, is that a person can solidify their position more and more and more. And if they harden and harden and harden their heart to these things, pretty soon that's who you become. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know when that point is where a person, you know, crosses the line. I mean, Paul, before he was Paul, was Saul, and he was on that road, but he turned. I mean, I, I don't know. But those choices are making us into someone. I think that's kind of one of the points here, is the choices we make are molding us into the person we're going to be. It's like those people who are... And I got to be careful because I'm being one of those people, the older people. You know, you see a person who, who's up there in years and y you've met that, you know, just grouchy old man who just get off the grass, kid. He just hates life. He hates everything. And then I've seen the old guys who are just joking and la full of life still and still clown around. And it's like this guy is just becoming more and more and more of who he is. And so is this guy. This guy's becoming more and more and more of who he is. You know, it's just carrying on. And imagine that for eternity. I could get real ugly or, or you know, it, it, but that's what, it's who you are. And you're just kind of reinforcing, reinforcing and building and building on that person that you are. And I think 
that's what we see with Pharaoh, and I think really that's what was taking place with Judas, is he was this person, and God used him as an example that he would fulfill the work that was going to take place. And, and as we see, too, what a great opportunity for the priests and those who are in the you know, Sanhedrin there now given an opportunity. I'll tell you where Jesus is when he's not around the people so you can do this secretly. Perfect. Good. We can take care of it now and we can do it without everyone knowing. And so now he falls into this plan and it's all happening on the Passover, which is when it needs to happen because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so... God is orchestrating these things, never violating a person's freedom to make those choices, but using the choices that people make to accomplish his work. If you figure it out, let me know, because it's bigger than my mind. But we still see the heart of Christ, even to Judas. He never blasts him. He never comes out and just, you idiot, how could you do something like that? It seems the disciples didn't know or they would have went after him, you know. But Jesus later on is going to say, it's you, do what you have to do, you know. And he does it so gently and it's telling. Yeah, we don't know. We don't know his background. You know, we know Matthew was a tax collector. We know Simon was kind of a zealot who would be kind of a terrorist kind of a guy, but we don't have much information on Judas. But, you know, I don't, I think what happens here is, again, just the unfolding of what was happening in him all along. But it just shows that you can be a part of great things and not be a good person or not be genuine. Search your heart. And in some ways that should give us a lot of comfort because then if, if someone could walk with Jesus and turn away and deny him, then don't take it so hard when people, you know, turn away and you feel like, but I was, you know, part of their life. I was sharing with them, you know, is it something I said? You know, if they turned away from Jesus. They're going to turn away from the things you say, you know, and it's human will is a powerful thing. And so sometimes you can get a little like, oh, no, I've done something wrong. I know parents, we can do this. Or if I would have done this, and if I would have done this, my kid would have been perfect, you know? And it's like, no, they probably still would have made some of those decisions that they made. You know, and we try, well, if I would have done this differently, if I would have done this differently, it's like, maybe, maybe not. They might have still been in that place, but it's hard for us as parents to let go of that responsibility. No, it was up to me to make them the perfect person, you know, or all that they could be. And But sometimes people have to go in, in that road, and it's a difficult road. Everyone is responsible for their actions, their choices, their decisions. Bless you. And I don't know where they're at. Yeah. I'll leave that to God, yeah. you know. It's like, well, there, they lost their salvation. I don't know. Yeah. Were they saved? I don't know. Did they lose? I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to go there. Because some people does happen. Mm -hmm. Some people do turn around. And then it's like, okay, what happened? Did they lose it? And then they find it again? <laughs> you know. Oh. Well, and I, I think it's telling that Matthew puts this right after what just happened 
with the incident with Mary and the perfume. I think he did that on purpose to give us a little disclosure on how you can, you know, have this attitude but miss worship. And here's Judas doing the exact same thing. And we don't know if Judas probably didn't know that they were actually going to kill him. He might have thought they were going to arrest him. They're going to maybe he didn't know that they were actually going to kill him and that's when he's like oh no you know i didn't mean for this and then it's too late no you this is what you did you know which could have been why the regret went up and up and up so he finally killed himself but um yeah it, it definitely took him to the place where he just kept going and i like that profiting you know off of this is something i'll get and then her oh, this is something i'll give great contrast great contrast yeah, I mean, Jesus even said, you know, you've had the prophets, you've had all these things happen, even if someone were to die and come back to life, you still wouldn't believe, you know, and I've, I know people who have gone through some just pretty amazing, miraculous things who have turned, choose, turned not, turned away and cho chosen not to believe in spite of some things that I thought were just, how could you, you can't deny what happened. And they don't deny, they, they just ignore and don't care. And that's, again, frightening thing, but we can do that. If we get locked into that frame of mind, we will become more and more determined, even if that determination is a bad thing. Yeah, and it becomes like a seed of poison. You know, it really does. Once we allow that bitterness to take root, it just grows and grows and grows. And if we don't kill it and turn away and deal with it, you know, with the choices, it will. It will consume us. Heavy stuff. Well, we didn't get near as far as I thought we were, but that's okay. Let's pray. Lord, there are times, I think, in each of our lives, I know in my life, where I am confronted with you not being the Jesus that I want you to be. When life isn't going my way, and it doesn't look like it's going to change. And I'm confronted with the reality of how things are and the choice of how I'm going to respond. And Lord, even tonight, maybe there are some here with us who are in that position, confronted with the harsh realities and hardships that are in front of us. And you're not being the God that we want you to be and we too have the choice of how we will respond with this, with you being okay with the circumstances, with you willing that we go through them as they are, not rescuing us or not bringing about a resolution that would be in our mind's best interest. And the choice, will we 
still worship you for the God you are? Or will we turn away because you're not the God we want you to be? And Lord, I have seen people with so little have so much. People who have lost so much, but still within them have so much more. And I have seen people who have what would seem to be it all and to be all but dead inside. And so we know it's not about the stuff. We know it's not about the circumstances. It's about the God who gives life and that life being in us. And so I pray that tonight, if there is someone confronted with this decision, whether to choose you and the God for who you are in the circumstances the way they are, or to turn away and flirt with how things could be. Lord, may we do what you've asked us to do in the scriptures. May we choose life and live. May we yield ourselves to you and know that even though things are not as easy as they could be, as good as we want them to be, you never stop being a good God. You never stop loving us. Lord, that this betrayal took place right before the greatest example of love that was ever displayed. Lord, may we not fall short and not be able to partake of that example of love. Lord, may we hold on, may we endure, May we continue to pursue after you. May we count the cost. May we give up what we have. May we worship you and, and break that uh, expensive ointment and think not of the cost, but think of the value of loving you and worshiping you. And Lord, may the fragrance of this worship last forever. May it carry us far beyond where we're at. May it lift our souls. May it refresh us. May we refresh you. And thank you, Lord, just for the input. What great conversation, Lord. So glad to be here. I'm thankful for your work in our lives. Continue that work, I pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.